there's so much false nutrition information going around these days, and I am so glad that I have a special guest here to debunk some of these myths that are going around about soy. Is soy good? Is soy bad? We're talking genetics. We're talking reversing diseases. We're talking nutritional deficiencies, what supplements you need to use. We're talking about PMS, thyroid, whatever you need to know. It's all in this episode. Hopefully this episode will give you some relief and my very special guest will be on very soon. But first, here's the intro. Welcome to the Avi Unfiltered Podcast. This is Avishai L, your host, holistic health coach and lifestyle expert. In this podcast, we're going to be interviewing top health experts, as well as talking to holistic healers, spiritual healers, and just helping you with everyday life. Each episode is going to be extremely fun. And as I always say, bring a green juice because it's going to be very juicy. I'm back with an amazing guest who specializes in preventing and reversing disease through nutritional and natural methods. He is the president of the Nutritional Research Foundation and the author of several books, with his most recent book being Fast Food Genocide. His New York Times bestsellers are Eat to Live, Eat to Live Cookbook, Super Immunity, The End of Diabetes, and The End of Heart Disease. Welcome, Dr. Joel Furman, back to the show. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Furman, for being on the Avi Unfiltered podcast. Great to be here. Yes. Looking forward to talking to you. Yes, same here. So what role do genetics play in overall health? I'd say a relatively minor role. You know, that's the beauty of these advances in nutritional science we're discovering, that with a high enough intake of certain phytochemicals, particularly the ITCs or the isothiocyanides, in green vegetables, in green cruciferous vegetables, they can suppress the genetic alterations that could lead to disease. In other words, when we have genetic defects and we inherit some problems with our DNA, that part of the gene can either be repaired or suppressed so it's not get, getting red. And, but that only happens in a high intake, in, a, in an excellent dietary environment. So yes, the, what are, basically most of the diseases that plague Americans, we know high blood pressure, high cholesterol, heart disease, strokes, diabetes, headaches, autoimmune conditions are not um, predominantly genetic. There are some diseases that are predominantly genetic that are relatively rare. You know, things like that people inherit, um, you know, they're born with a circular genetic problem or defect where they have to be on a certain, you know, so they have to be on a certain, not can't have a certain um, amino acid in their diet or, you know, in other words, there's, but those are relatively rare. We're having a population that's being um, devastated from, from a poor diet that allows, and everybody has some genetic weaknesses, but those weaknesses don't manifest themselves unless you eat poorly. Uh, so what do you say to those doctors who, for instance, there was a, I think it was a MTHFR genetic mutation. And I guess that mutation, it, it does something to people's moods and things. How much does does a genetic mutation like that affect somebody, or is that some sort of myth? Um, well, a heterozygous mutation with a defect in one gene doesn't really do anything, especially if you eat a healthy diet. You're getting tons of folate and tons of nutrients. But when you have a homozygous um, defect in the MTFHR gene, then you have 
a higher need for certain for folate because the body doesn't process folate. So then, but that's extremely rare. That's so there are some rare things, but like I said, if you have one bad gene, it's not going to cause a problem. In that case, two bad genes you inherited, then you do need to do something about it and probably take a supplement to keep your homocysteine down lower. Take some extra folate because your homocysteine might be too high in that case. But even that's um, rare and has different amounts of penetration and way it's expressed is different from people to people, person to person. So it's not a major problem in our society. Interesting, because people people who I know had the MTHFR genetic mutation, it took them like years to figure out what was going on. And I'm, I'm kind of glad that you cleared that up, that it's not that big of a deal. Because I know people who go from doctor to doctor, and they're on so many different supplements because of that mutation, supposedly. Sometimes they're Right. Sometimes they're just sick from because the American diet is so deadly. It's so like people going to Lyme disease doctors, thinking they have Lyme disease. And they may have had Lyme disease at some point in the past, and they may have some blood tests that might be suggestive of having, you know, because you have a lot of things wrong with your, um, a lot of things wrong with your antibodies that could suggest that you have an autoimmune condition. It can almost mimic the same blood. It can give you a borderline Lyme disease positivity. So it's hard to discern, discern that. What I'm saying right now is that people are generally fatigued, they're in pain, they're inflamed. And they go to doctors and they get falsely diagnosed with Lyme disease and put on antibiotics. And they get falsely diagnosed with thyroid problems. They don't have thyroid disease. They get falsely diagnosed with, FA, with um, MTFHR um, genetic deficiencies when it's a heterozygous deficiency, which means nothing. And it's just overall their bad life habits and their bad diet that's causing all these um, symptoms. And then the doctors are treating them as if, oh, this doctor diagnosed me. He found my problem. And now I'm taking substance that's going to help me. And the people, you know, so they're, they're not being well served. Um, but that doesn't mean there are real cases of Lyme disease and there aren't real cases of homozygous advanced MTHR deficiency. It's just not very, they're just very rare. They're just not as prevalent as people think. Right. Agreed. So what you mentioned thyroid. Now, what tests should someone get to rule out a thyroid issue? Well, I, keep in mind that one of the parameters of life extension and one of the basic principles of the nutritarian diet is a dietary program that slows aging. And the most proven methodology to slow aging is moderate caloric restriction in the context of micronutrient excellence. That's moderate caloric restriction means you're eating a little less, so you're keeping yourself slim. And when you eat more, it speeds up your metabolism because your body tries to burn off those calories. And when you eat less, it slows down your metabolism a little bit. So the metabolism is the rate at which you're aging. So having your metabolism be a little bit slow is a lifespan advantage. So what I'm saying right now is in the framework of the normal levels of free T4, here's the low end of normal, here's the high end of normal. In that, within that normal range, the bottom half has half the heart attack risks as the top half. And the bottom half has less chance of cardiac arrhythmia, ages slower, and a longer life. But in an overweight population eating poorly, some doctors may want to push people into the upper half, make their thyroid overactivated to try to get them to be thinner or to get them to lose, to get their triglycerides down and their cholesterol more favorable. It's not favorable to, to be pushing their thyroid to run faster. So what I'm saying right now is that we should be living in a manner so we can have our, our metabolism slow to touch. That means we're a respiratory quotient. The amount of calories burned through um, breathing is less. Our body temperature lowers a little bit. 
and our thyroid lowers a little bit within the framework of normal function. And then we're aging slower and living longer. So the, the, the general test, the simple test for thyroid function is a TSH and a free T4. But what I'm saying right now is that you shouldn't try to push your levels high. You want them to be not, not bad or not wrong, um, not some skewed way off, but you don't want to have excessive thyroid function even within normal range. And you shouldn't, if you're needing medication for it, you shouldn't over-medicate. And you shouldn't be pushing yourself into the higher range to suppress your TSH that low, which some doctors do to help people lose weight. It's not benefit for the longevity. I'm going to close the door behind me because there's some noise going on in the kitchen. Okay, sure. Right. So I'm saying that um, that, the, that if your TSH is even getting, you know, getting goes higher, and a lot of a lot of people, especially women, their thyroid gland that produces thyroid hormone is very sensitive to petrochemicals and plastics and exposure to toxins, and they burn out their thyroid when they're young in life, and they need thyroid hormone. And a healthy diet usually cannot reverse that. They still need some small amount of thyroid hormone if they've hurt their thyroid and developed the autoimmune attack on the thyroid, and they're usually called Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Ah. So what I'm saying right now is they still need some thyroid hormone, but they shouldn't take so much to suppress their TSH that low. They shouldn't get their TSH below one. Probably it's best to keep their TSH below two and three to only use enough thyroid hormone to be between two and four, actually, not between, you know, zero and two. It's better to be a little, to not to overly treat it. You follow me? Yes. Now, can they get off of their, <clears throat> the thyroid hormone medication? No, they cannot. It's very, it's very rare that a person's Hashimoto's thyroiditis goes away, even with excellent nutrition. It generally, once they develop that, they need to take those medications for the rest of their life. Wow, that's very interesting. So that, that brings me to my next question. Can type 1 diabetes be reversed? Because I know type 2 can be reversed, but I've heard some cases of type 1 not being able to, and I wanted to hear your take on that. Right, I just published three cases in the International Journal of Disease, Prevention and Perverse, Disease Reversal and Prevention um, with three cases of type 1 diabetes. Um, it can, like, like take a, for example, this doc, he was a physician working as an anesthesiologist who was using a lot of insulin to control his blood sugars and get highs and lows. And when he switched to a nutritarian diet, he's now using about a third as much insulin. His levels are stable, he's slimmer and healthier, and he's um, saving his life and getting a much better health. He still has type 1 diabetes. He still needs to use some insulin, but he's not using anywhere near the amounts he used to use. He only needs a third of the amount of insulin. Now he's on 20 units a day, not 60 units a day of insulin, for example. Now I have, I did report on a couple of cases of type 1s that were, what, that came to me very early on when they were first diagnosed as young children. And in those cases, I've had some cases that have, have been um, reversed where their diet didn't develop type 1 or they got better. And in other cases where I've held them into like a suspended kind of state of not being, of not requiring insulin, except when they got sick or, or still have, you know, or just using very tiny amounts. So in other words, I think it's possible to reverse a type 1 if you the very um, initial stage of diagnosis, if you do everything perfectly, there are some cases that might come back to normal again. But even that is not going to be predictable. And we, you know, and I have so few cases that to, to have had to done that with, I can't really detect any pattern. You know what I mean? 
Right. Well, I can say for me, I was diagnosed with type one at the age of 26. I was misdiagnosed by so many doctors. And I can say that your diet helps my keep my blood blood sugar levels in check. Right. So how much insulin do you use each day? I haven't. I don't take insulin. You don't. You have type one, and you're on no insulin. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's phenomenal. Yeah. Wow, that's phenomenal. You got to. You got to. Um. Right. Give me your whole all your data and everything. It's important for me to know about that. Then. Yeah, I definitely and, will. Definitely. Where's the hemoglobin A1C run? I don't know. I haven't. I haven't been tested for a few years now. Okay, so we should probably just check check you. You know, certainly eating right, but if you have true type one, we got to be careful that you don't need a tiny bit of insulin, because the body needs some insulin, small amounts. What makes a type one so dangerous when they eat conventional food is that they start requiring large amounts of insulin to con to control their blood sugars, and it's the large amounts of insulin that age the body and destroys your health. But a little bit of insulin, just to keep your sugars in the most favorable range, isn't is going to be just supplying you with a little bit of something you may need. I don't know. I have to look at your numbers. You know what I mean? We should we should be take a careful look at that. Yeah, definitely. I I definitely will send that to you and or you know get retested. But I I noticed like right. We yeah. should just you should be and and the other thing is is that um, we should see if you have any insulin production. Do an insulin a fasting insulin level. And see if there's any production of insulin, or you have none at all. So we should we should just be a little more careful in, in keeping track of what you're doing. Yeah, agreed. And thank you. Definitely, we'll send that over. So, does your mood biotech help women um, with PMS and menopause? Hmm. Probably not. I mean, if you have any agitation, the mood biotech is basically. I have two like, kind of herbal supplemental. Um, products that I've designed. One is called Mood Biotech and the other is called Calm Biotech. The Mood Biotech is mostly for a mild antidepressant, dysthymia, people aren't feeling well emotionally, they're a little bit depressed or feeling, so it gives you the natural, you know, saffron, 5-HTP, you know, a little bit of a SAMI, what, the mixture of things that are most effective that work synergistically to help people elevate their moods safely without having to go on drugs. So yes, I think people are having a little bit, and the word dysthymia, it means you're not totally depressed, but you're not really happy either. You kind of have a flat affect, and you're not really excited about life. And good nutrition helps, and the, the diet helps this tremendously. But adding this supplement can help it a little more for people who need it to, to really give them a little better emotional outlook. And the Calm Biotech, too, is something new that, that we have on the website that's coming out that um, is basically people with insomnia, a little bit of anxiety, um, just a little people who are worried and don't sleep well or a little bit... Um, been stressed out to help them stay calm, you know. I think that's awesome. I'm definitely going to get those. <laughs> I have, <laughs> I have your Ultra Cell Biotech, your Immune Biotech, but I'll add those. Definitely add those to the list. Right, and the Ultra Cell, and those are mostly for people who have a, you know, the, the, it says take two or three a day, but I just take one a day as like a cancer preventative substance. But some people have a high risk of cancer or have cancer. We give more of those because they have some type of protective immune function and cellular surveillance and, you know, helps the body keep cells from replicating. So we're, we're just giving a little bit of developing a protocol for people who either have an early stage cancer or who are prone for cancer. You know, and, and as you know, but the, but the majority of like the, you could say the bread and butter of my, of my work is people who are overweight and have type 2 diabetes and have high blood pressure and headaches and fatigue. 
You know, that's the bread and butter. Most people are overweight and sickly, and they're food addicts, you know, and that's where a combination of the type of diet and the training and the connectivity through the website and knowing they have a support system. And when needed, they can, I have a retreat where people can come in and stay with me for a month or three, two or three months to really to tr totally change their mind. Because there's a reason why they're not eating healthfully and there's a reason why they can't, they're having trouble sticking with the diet. And they, they know they shouldn't be overweight. They know that they're sickly, but they don't recognize that number one, they can make a complete recovery from number two, they could love eating this way and, and enjoy being super healthy and not have to be on blood pressure medications and diabetic medications and re reduce their risk and save their lives. But they're afraid to save their lives because they think their life will be too, they think it's, that it's not enjoyable to eat this way or it's too hard to make the change or it's impossible for them to change, there's too much temptation. And we show them that it's not the case. Once they learn the recipes, they retrain their taste buds and they get rid of, and they get, enough time away from the addictive triggers, they can, their taste buds actually improve and get stronger and actually like the taste of these nutritarian recipes even better than some of the old junk they were eating and, they, and the results then astound them and keep them motivated to stay on the program. So that's what we've been showing that um, setting up the right type of environment and the right type of professional staff that when people have trouble and they think they can't do this, we can make them stick with it, make them enjoy it, and, have, and make them enable to have long-term benefits to reverse their diabetes, reverse their heart disease, get off their blood pressure medications, get rid of their headaches, and get rid of their fatigue. This is awesome. I'm so glad you have the retreats. First of all, they're beautiful, but, or first of all, it's, it's educational packed, but second of all, they're beautiful. So you have a peaceful environment. You have a doctor who knows his stuff and specializes in everything you need in nutrition and disease reversal. You definitely want to check it out on his website, www.drferman.com. And I, I just think it's amazing because I, I do see that a, a lot of people have food addiction and a lot of people, they, they take the fun out of eating healthy because they do think it's boring. And it's, it's nice that you provide recipes and a whole menu for people to show them that it's not. Yeah. You know, at drferman.com, I have about 50, at least 1,500, maybe closer to wow. 2,000 recipes. So we have an unlimited amount of recipes. That's not the issue. But when they go to the retreat, we have chefs, three chefs that are not just preparing delicious tasting food, but they are actually teaching the people how to make the food taste good. So people have a little bit of trouble figuring out what to do. They can actually pick out those recipes they love and they want to learn and repeat when they get home. And they can really learn those recipes. And because you don't need that many, what do you need? 10 main dishes, five desserts, five soups. How many, how many recipes can a person need? You just got to find some things you really love and incorporate into your schedule. You know what I mean? So it's, and um, so there's no, in other words, it's called a no brainer. There's no reason a person should not eat this way and make their life a crapshoot and wind up stuck at a nursing home after a stroke or a hemorrhage or something or, or wind up, you know, have heart attacks or get cancers because these advances in nutritional science enable us to control our health destiny, have a better quality of life and a happier life and really take care of our, you know, really um, be able to fully enjoy our life as we age. And food and eating healthfully and learning how to make healthy eating taste great makes life more fun, more tasty, more delicious, not less. It makes so you can marry together the great taste with great health and not because people will go because they'll, you know, 
so many people will say, well, I'd rather be dead right now. Just shoot me if I had to eat that way. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's, that's their response. So that the biggest obstacle to people changing their diet is the fact that they think it's not going to be enjoyable. And they live for to be addicted to their food substances. And it's true addiction. They can't stop. But when you put together a protocol, remove the obstacles, and in this case, have a facility where people can, you know, are removed from the temptation, they stop desiring those foods and they prefer to eat healthfully. Exactly. Living a holistic lifestyle of happiness and health is a beautiful thing. And that's, that's excellent that you do that at the Eat to Live Retreat, which I hope to one day get to. <laughs> Yes, definitely. So you mentioned you take UltraCell Biotech. Do you take about one a day? Should everyone be taking supplements? Well, those are not the critical foundational supplements. Those are, you know, little extra things with like mixed mushroom extracts and green tea and curcumin and turmeric. They're just like extra phytochemicals for your immune system. So they're the, the main essential things for people on a vegan or near vegan diet are B12, extra zinc, because you only absorb about 20% of the zinc from plants compared to animal products, compared to 80% from animal products. And zinc, for having a borderline zinc could affect your immune system as you age, especially because, especially that your risk of pneumonia or infection in later life. But in any case, so it's B12, it's making sure you have enough iodine, um, zinc, K2 may be something beneficial, which you don't get much on plant foods. And the other thing is that many people on a vegan diet their DHA, their omega-3 index gets too low, which sets them at a higher risk of later life diseases. And therefore, a little DHA and EPA, a little supplement with um, some of those vegan long-chain fatty acids that are normally called fish oil. There's vegan sources of that. And we usually give people that to take as well. Okay. okay. So we just want to make sure nobody gets deficient in anything on a vegan diet. That you're on a, as you're approaching a vegan diet, the question is, what is an animal products that people might need that their, that their health could possibly be at risk of if they did not take in? And so we're very careful to give them a conservative number of those supplements, but not giving them excess amounts. And especially concerned about the use of multivitamins and, and, and commercial vitamins that have folic acid, vitamin A, acetylpalmitate, and vitamin E fractions in them, because those things have been and, and excessive amounts of vitamin D because those things have been shown to increase risk and increase risk of cancer. Too much, you know, isolated vitamin E, beta carotene, um, isolated vitamin A, and folic acid increases risk of cancer, like breast and prostate cancer. So some of these conventional vitamins people are taking are not safe. Right. And I actually posted your vitamins on my Instagram. I said all vitamins are not created equal. Like you just said, there's folic acid that can cause cancer, which is a scary thing. Right. I, I, I agree. I think folic acid is most likely... The, mis the biggest mistake people make in the supplemental world is they, they, and as they fortify folic acid in soy milk, in, in breads, it's all over the place. And then people are taking supplements with folic acid. And that extra folic, the, they're taking in so much folic acid, and I think that's a major driver of cancer, the excess folic acid people are taking. We've got, even people using nutritional yeast, fortified nutritional yeast with folic acid. They're pouring this folic acid coming out them from a million different directions, which is a significant health risk. And they to, 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 so you're avoiding a supplement with folic acid is very important. Yes, definitely. Um, now, what would be your recommendation for people with, uh, for people who eat animal products? Like what vitamins and supplements? 
Well, when people are eating animal products, the, the animal products they're eating do not contain phytochemicals and antioxidants. So the main thing is they're phytochemical and antioxidant deficient. The other thing is they're getting too much heme iron, you know, and too much toxic mineral, toxic substances too. So beans, red beans and black beans, beans do have some of the phytic acid that binds the extra iron or extra toxic waste products. Beans that have an effect to um, lessen some of the damage from animal products. And then, of course, they should be eating a lot of greens and a lot of the, the diet should be as healthy as they can possibly make it. And even drinking vegetable juices to get as much penetration of the phytochemicals. Um, but you know what? Um, you can't make a diet high in animal products healthy. Even if you do everything right, because it's high in animal products, you have excessive production of IGF-1 and excessive production of TMAO, trimethylamine oxide, which causes endothelial inflammation. So that because of the bacterial um, effects of the high, and because of the uh, there's so much high concentrated protein, because of the bloodstream so quickly, and that the extra protein drives up these growth-promoting hormones, which then allow cancer to replicate. So what I'm saying right now is that um, any diet that has a, a, you know, a liberal use of animal products um, is increasing the risk of cancer, even if you do everything else right. Wow, I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned that because a lot of people uh, in today's society, you know, they like I mentioned on the last interview, they have you know meat as the bulk of their meal because they're thinking protein, protein, pro protein, and as you mentioned, no one ever died from you know too much protein or too little too little protein. I mean, well, it's meat, it's chicken, it's fish. It's eggs and it's dairy products. Right. All these animal products drive up the hormones unfavorable and do not contain fiber and phytonutrients and antioxidants. So in other words, what I'm saying right now is a piece of chicken is like a bagel because they're both just sources of calories with no significant micronutrient load. They don't contain exactly. a lot of vitamins and minerals and they don't contain the antioxidants and phytochemicals that extend lifespan and protect your immune system. So the more to the percent that you eat the bagels and the bread and the pasta and the oils and the animal products, you're diluting the nutrition, the micronutrient concentration of your diet. If you follow an animal around in the jungles, like a gorilla or a chimpanzee or something, you'll see the, uh, the phytochemical richness of what they eat. They're eating so much colorful plants, flowers and greens, and their level of nutrients is like 50 times what we get. Those are not wasted nutrients. Those high amount of phytochemicals stabilize the telomeres and stabilize the stem cells from when we age to enable us to live a long time so those cells can replace senescent and damaged cells as we age. Otherwise, we just shorten our lifespan tremendously. So we, we need a large exposure to these high-nutrient plants, especially greens. And that's the, whole, that's the whole foundation of my nutritional recommendation. It's called a nutritarian diet. It's called nutritarian because it's rich in nutrients and rich in these lifespan-enhancing nutrients, which means that therefore has to be you have to cut out the processed foods and the oils and you have to lower and cut out the animal products if you're utilizing those foods as condiments of very small amounts but as soon as those foods get to a certain level going too high then you diminish your exposure to phytochemicals and you have other toxic effects that happens because of those foods being too high in your diet 
Agreed. And I'm glad I do your diet and I'm a vegan <laughs> to avoid those issues. But I want to go back to you had mentioned um, about beans. Now, I love beans, but I'm allergic to beans. Like my stomach bloats with them and I stay inflamed. Um, so any recommendations for people who can't have beans? Well, first of all, I would look at what beans you could have. Like when you eat edamame or can you eat soybean or can you eat, you know, something like that, first of all. And maybe it's just you can't eat any bean. You can't eat soybean either. But And then I would look at is this a true allergy or just a digestive intolerance? And if it's a digestive intolerance, then we would titrate down the amount of bean to the point where you could tolerate it. It, it almost never has to be zero. It could be a teaspoon or a tablespoon, chewed very well. So I, we wouldn't take beans out of your diet totally, but establish what was the level which you could tolerate in your diet so that over time, you may be able to increase that as your body gets used to digesting it and builds up the enzymes and the, and the bacteria that are utilized in digesting those beans. So I think that I'd, I'd like the opportunity to maybe work on that and to look into it further to see if it can be solved in some way. That would be amazing. You don't know how many times I see like vegan chili and I'm like, oh, I want to eat that so bad. <laughs> but yeah, that would be great to look at. I didn't even think of that if it was a digestive enzyme sort of thing. I know I had, you know, testing done before and they told me you can't ever have beans. And I was, you know, I was used to eating beans all the time. What, was, what, what, was the test, what type of test established that is the question. It was a gen so Oh, go ahead. Yeah. There's so many um, dubious and tests like an IgG or a, there's, there's certain tests that are just not accurate that get people afraid of eating certain foods that they're not allergic to. And they, especially if they're not digesting it well, the body can learn to digest something well with the regular use of the substance. So a lot of times those tests lead people in the wrong direction. Right. It was a, a genetic test and um, done by a functional diagnostic. He had saw where... I, where my inflammation levels were, I could send that over too, if you wanted to look at that, but it, it's like a whole breakdown. And he said his recommendation would be not to have beans. Like I can't ever, you know, digest beans or have it in my diet. Most likely I would look at that test and consider it bogus. Most likely it's, a, it's scamming people. There's wow. no such, there's no such test available that can give that information. Good to know. <laughs> but let me look at it. Okay. Thank you. I'd appreciate that. I'll There's so send much that over. scamming going on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, no, I agree. I agree. So what, what recommendations do you have for people diagnosed with dementia and Alzheimer's? Like what protocol or any, any tips you can offer? Well, hopefully we won't get to that because you could once, because certain degree of Alzheimer's, and dementia, you have brain shrinkage and you have architectural distortion of the brain. And the brain, the nerve tissue in the brain is not something that can reverse itself or can reverse, reverse itself significantly once that occurs. The main thing is to protect against that happening. And that's what a diet rich in phytochemicals and nutrients does. Well, that's why we give people the DHA because of some um, indication that if on a vegan diet, if your level of omega-3 index and DHA is too low, we can get, you can get brain shrinkage with aging. But once your brain shrinks, you're not growing back a new brain. It's too late to wait till you have dementia to try to fix it. 
What you should do is when you still have your full mental faculties intact, that's when you got to prevent. That's so it's something that's totally preventable, but not fixable once you develop it. So now is the time. Don't wait till you get bad. You know, that doesn't mean we don't want to make any improvement in people's diets if they start to have early memory loss, or early dementia. We could halt it from progressing as badly. We can, you know, give people a little bit, probably maybe a, a small amount of improvement. But generally speaking, it's not a reversible condition like diabetes or heart disease and high blood pressure is. It's the end stage pathology of many decades of doing the wrong thing. So we got to catch people before those de decades of self abuse accumulate to get there. Right. Agreed. I, I did not know that. I thought it could be reversed. But yeah, like you said, you got to definitely have to prevent it. A lot of people nowadays think they have time or think they can eat what they want. And some people have this, this um, mentality that, oh, eat what you want, you know, live a little. <laughs> then you wind up not living. Exactly. Or worse, or worst case scenario, being demented or being in a nursing home after a stroke or ruling the end of your life. And that becomes... You know, when you don't eat healthfully, it doesn't just destroy your own life. It destroys the health of your family, too. Because now they can, now you put, put their responsibility to have to care for you when you're demented. And when you're in a nursing home or when you can't care for yourself, you have to have your children caring for you. It's very, you know, it, so it's a real um, burden placed on them, you know. Yes, absolutely. You're not enjoying yourself now. You're, what you're doing is you're, a, those people are just, see, when you're a food addict, you have all these irrational and delusional rationalizations why it's okay to smoke, to snort, to eat junk food, to eat bagels, to eat croissants, to eat, you know, to eat pizza, to eat burgers. Oh, enjoy yourself now, worry about that, whatever it is. People say, I'm in too much stress. Oh, my family doesn't eat this way. My job doesn't, you know. They always have a, an addict always has an excuse. But the excuses don't hold up because their life is made stressful by their addiction. And to the extent that they're an addict, it takes away their full humanness and ability to be the full creative person they could have become with the full mental faculties intact. They can't, they're just a shell of where they could have been. No. Their addiction contributes to those stresses and makes them unable to solve them. And instead of looking, for, instead of having creative solutions, then the body becomes mired in their own addictive behavior. So you become less consumed about the well-being of others and your own well-being because fueling your addiction is overriding your decision-making. So it makes you less creative, less intelligent, less solution, less speaking to solutions, and more falling back on feeling sorry for yourself and going back into yourself and your own self-defeating and self-destructive habits. Right. Now, some people say soy is good for you, soy is bad for you. What's your take on soy? I know you have soy in some of your recipes, but I wanted to hear a little more in depth about that. Um, I think that soybeans, that whole soybeans that you can re um, soak and cook into a soup or, or um, eat an edamame are um, one of the most lifespan-enhancing, anti-cancer, bone-strengthening foods you could possibly eat. What I'm saying is that... Soybeans are a superfood that extends your life and prevents cancer. And what people do is they look at processed soy foods. It's like taking cornflakes are not good and saying, well, that's why corn is not good because eating Fritos cornflakes is bad. You know what I mean? So, yes, as you process soy into isolated soy protein or soy formula, now you have soy junk food. 
and soy junk food and soy and isolated soy protein has an effect like meat to raise IGF-1 too high. And so there's some dangers in eating isolated soy and fake foods made from isolated soy. But that's not, that's like the same thing as comparing sugar to eating an apple. You know what I mean? Right. So there's, in other words, soybeans should be utilized and are a superfood that prolongs lifespan and adds to your health. So that's, that's great to hear. So for people who have had a history of endometriosis or like reproductive system illnesses or disorders or things like that, or who have high levels of estrogen, are soybeans still okay for them too? They're not only okay for them, but they have anti-estrogenic effects because the genistein in soy blocks the estrogen receptors. Problem lies is that, is that the confusion is, is that soy milk and tofu are not a whole soy food. They're made from the soy milk, not from a whole bean. And the whole bean has more protective anti-cancer effects and more beneficial effects on bone mass as well. So you do, you're not gonna see the benefits from soy and drinking soy milk and tofu as you would if you ate a product with the whole bean in it like tempeh or edamame or the dried soybeans that you made into a soup. So those are the only, so we're talking about the whole soybean being the healthiest way to confuse. I'm not saying that nobody any tofu or soy milk, you can have that moderately or in small amounts, but you're not going to get the full benefit from soy unless you get the whole bean. It's the same thing with the whole nut, the whole vegetable, the whole, you want the whole food to get the most maximum benefits from it. That's excellent to hear. I, I used to think all soy was created equal and, you know, I've had a history of being allergic to soy, but like you said, it may not even be an allergy. It could be like a digestive enzyme sort of thing. So I, I just cut it out completely out of my diet but that's good to know. You'd be an interesting case for me to work with to see to look through all your tests and to see what you're doing and see if we could fix some of these things. Yeah, that I need to work with somebody because it's, you know, even as a holistic health coach, it's just I, I can't eat a lot of things, like allergic to a lot of stuff. Um, for instance, I'm allergic to avocado. Really? Yeah. What happens if you eat avocado? If I eat avocado, I start to itch really bad. I break out in these hives, and I can go into uh, anaphylactic shock or paralysis. So that's a more definitive allergy. You know what I mean? So we have to differentiate a real allergy like that, where you itch and get hives and you get swelling, compared to one where you're just not digesting the food well. You know what I mean? So we've got to really differentiate this and figure this out. What would be the average weight for most uh, males and females? or the health, the optimal well, weight, I should say. It varies so much from person to person, but the average five foot five female, five foot four, five foot six female should probably weigh between 105 and 120 pounds. You know, probably shouldn't be over 120 pounds. Um, and the average um, male, five foot eight to five foot 11 male should weigh somewhere between 130 and 165, 170 pounds, you know. I mean, it shouldn't be more, you know what I mean? We should be, people should be lean. And it's, it's not this weight, the number on the scale. It's whether they're lean, their body fat is low. Can you see their abdominal muscles? Are they, there's a male, you should see they, they should be ripped. You shouldn't be, they should see, a, they should see them, their, um, what's it called? Um, their six pack. They right. should see their six pack, you know? You shouldn't have people be able to roll the fat around their waist. The American authorities say that 70% of Americans are overweight because they use a BMI of, of 25 is the demarcation line to classify a person as overweight or normal weight. But all along the societies have BMIs below 23, not below 25. If we use that as the demarcation line, then it's 
88% of Americans Almost all Americans are overweight. That's true. And I, I asked that question because there's a lot of people advocating for, you know, not not being lean. And I, I understand we, we should all embrace our bodies where we are. But we should also make the necessary changes. But there's a lot of people that are advocating for, you know, don't weigh yourself. Don't check your, your BMI. Don't, you know, you don't have to be lean. So I just want to keep there's no such thing as a healthy, overweight person. Those exactly. people are food addicts. They're deluding themselves, and they want to think it's okay to smoke cigarettes or to be alcoholics or to overeat food and be overweight. It's like because they're not successful dieting or eating healthfully, they want to make it so they're rationalizing why it's okay to be overweight. And it's really not, it's, it's not a movement that's leading to, uh, it's destructive to people's well-being and to the future of our nation. Absolutely. I agree it's with not that. Good. People should understand can't be overweight and healthy. And if you're overweight, you're not taking the right to good care of your body and you're not taking good care of your mind and you're being destructive to the people that care about you. Absolutely. Now, how do you feel about food combining? It's generally unnecessary. In other words, um, Dr. Herbert Shelton in the 1950s wrote the book Food Combining Made Easy. Um, it was then further per, um, promoted by the Diamonds in their book uh, Food for Life, I think it was. You know, so they got a lot of publicity many, many years ago. But in subsequent scientific investigations and looking at the way the digestive system work, it doesn't hold up to scientific scrutiny. If you, if you, so if you. Uh, matter of fact, with more variety at the meal, you have better absorption, you have better assimilation of nutrients. It's better to eat more variety, not less variety. And if you have a certain combination of foods that you don't digest well and don't digest, then you shouldn't eat, eat that. But, it, but there's no combinations that everybody needs to follow to not combine foods. So should the focus be more so on fixing your digestive tract versus combining, I don't know, combining <laughs> grapes with grapes and seeds with seeds? kind of thing on what no the I, focus should be on eating a high quality diet and let the digestive tract do its thing you know the, the focus on eating the best um anti-cancer longevity promoting foods that you can find for yourself use sprouts and microgreens and raw vegetables and cooked greens and mushroom and i have that acronym gbos which stands for g-b-o-m-b-s Greens, beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, and seeds, recognizing that mushrooms have tremendous power to protect cancer. Berries have beneficial effects on the brain, and flax seeds and chia seeds have effective, you know, have beneficial effects against cancer. That all these things have documented efficacy to reduce rate of cancer when your diet contains a variety of these foods. And so we want people to have that whole rainbow of food choices into their diet each day, and not to be, not to have a mono diet, and not to worry about food combinations. To eat fruit alone or have you just to, the most important thing is have a variety of these high quality anti-cancer health protective foods in your diet right i'm glad you cleared that up even for me yeah go ahead i'm sorry go ahead even for you yeah, even for you we got to look at what you can eat and give you the most variety possible of the best quality foods for you that you possibly can eat Right when you cut back on the the variety, you remove the beans. You're not going to be as good at health. You remove the fruit. You're not going to be as good at health. You remove the nuts. You're not going to be as good as health. The more variety of food types you can include in your diet, the better your health. 
Absolutely. And I'm glad you cleared that up because, oh, is fasting for everyone? Well, fasting can be used as a therapeutic tool to help a person go over that hump to maybe get rid of their asthma or improve their lupus or their, or their ulcerative colitis or something. But right now we have a population of people that are overweight and sickly and eating poorly. And fasting is not the right place they should start. The right place they should start is to train their taste buds and learn the recipes and start to eat a healthy diet. If you take a person who's not, not eating healthy, you put them on a fast, it's, gonna be, it's not even going to be safe for them to fast. And it's not going to induce them to start eating healthy after the fast. It's going to make them, they're just going to slow the metabolic rate down so much and make them more likely to gain weight, to gain, to gain the weight back quickly when they overeat after the fast and start to eat the wrong foods after the fast. I don't even want people to fast unless they've proven to me that they can follow the diet for long periods of time and they're a super healthy eater. And then they can use fasting judiciously as a means of accelerating their healing for certain diseases. So I, can, I do utilize fasting as a therapeutic tool, but I certainly um, don't want to emphasize it as a place where people should be starting. First station, or, or to think that they should utilize fasting for weight loss. They've got to have a, maintain their perfect weight. They've got to get consistent with a lifestyle, uh, which includes diet and exercise, that they can stick with for the rest of their life and maintain it. Right. Now, how do you feel about intermittent fasting? I think that the most important thing to remember about intermittent fasting is that for most people, the most lifespan enhancing part of that is going to bed on an empty stomach, not eating within four hours of bedtime. So no matter what you're doing, and whether you call it time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting, whether you're skipping a meal, the most important thing to do is not eat a heavy meal late at night and go to bed with a lot of food in your stomach. That's the most important thing. Take that intermittent fasting and keep saying to yourself, I need to go to bed at night and sleep well while I'm not digesting food at the same time. Finish your digesting and then go to bed. Stack your calories earlier in the day. Eat a lighter dinner and an earlier dinner and don't go to bed on a full stomach. That's awesome advice. I wanted to ask you about your books. Now, is there, any, is there anything that you would change in your books with the new knowledge that you have now? Like, is there anything you would go back and say, let me change that or let me fix that? Of course. Well, the book I'm recommending for people with food addiction and obesity is The End of Dieting. It's not my, my book that I wrote in 2004, Eat to Live. Eat to Live is the book with the flaws in it because what happens with Eat to Live is it gives you a very super healthy diet for six weeks but then it allows people to have too much cheat days or too much cheat foods in their diet. It's too permissive. And a lot of people who are food addicts and have that food addict mentality, giving them five or 10% of foods they can play with, sucks them back into that addictive eating patterns and they gain the weight back or there. So allowing them to cheat is so much easier when you put both feet in and you stick with the program, you learn how to make your diet taste great, and you don't put one foot in both worlds going back and forth because that's the track. That's the like the slip up or the flaw is that people think they can go out on the weekends and eat, you know, and eat junk food or eat what they want, and eat healthy all week. And it doesn't work. It winds up for so many people. It winds up putting, getting them into trouble. So the main flaw that I would criticizing myself for 
with regard to my earlier books is they weren't strict enough. You know what I mean? Over the years, I said, you can't give people that leeway to cheat because too many people, it messes them up. You have to be straight and narrow, be, the, be in, the, in the lane, stay in the boundaries, follow the plan, and it's not acceptable to go out and have those foods once a week or twice a week. It's not good enough to, because for so many people, that just makes them want them more. It's true. I'll, I'll admit, when I saw that 10%, I was like, hmm, what do I want to fill this with? <laughs> it is tempting. And then, and it winds up being 20% then. You know what I mean? Giving yeah. them 10% leeway, it, it winds up being more than that. It, it doesn't always, and it messes so many people up. I think I could have been more clear in that earlier book that for many people, um, having some, some flexibility can really mess them up. I don't think I was enough strong enough about that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good that you're humbled uh, enough to to recognize that. And I th I still think it's a great book. Yeah. Yeah, Any... certainly. Go ahead. I, I do think it's still worthwhile for people to read it in a great book. But of course, I've written twelve books since then, right. and I have books that are a little bit that that don't have that same flaw in it. You know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, is there any closing advice or recommendations for people? that you would give them? Well, don't be satisfied with being sick. People are satisfied with ha having scleroderma and lupus and headaches and, and, the, and fibromyalgia, and they just think they're sick the rest of their lives, and they get these that, that remember um, that th nutritional excellence is therapeutically so powerful that it's not good enough to have be re remain on blood pressure medications. Those medications are carcinogenic and can increase risk of cancer. In other words, you can get well, and you should get well. Don't be accepting of doing what doctors tell you to do, and that's stay on medications the rest of your life and stay sick. Get off the medical merry-go-round, and don't be dependent on physicians, and take care of your own health destiny, and you should be the controller of your health, and do whatever you need to do, whatever it takes to get in great health. I love that. That's the best advice, especially for now. Complacency is not the answer. You definitely want to take control of your health, Definitely visit Dr. Furman's website, www.drfurman.com. Definitely visit his retreats. Take some time off and go give yourself some self-care and self-love. Dr. Furman, as always, it's so great to have you on the Avian Filtered podcast, and you're always welcome to come back. Sounds good. Okay, wishing you, of course, all the best of health and all your listeners. Yes. Thanks for the, for the discussion today. Thank you so much. As always, it's a pleasure to have Dr. Furman on the Avi Unfiltered podcast. It's always a wealth of new information that could be put to use on a daily basis and in everyone's life that they can truly benefit from. Let's definitely take the information that he left into accountability. If you need to reach him, need to get any supplements, want to work with him, his website's www.drfurman.com. If you'd like to work with me for holistic health coaching, that's www.avishael.com contact, and I'll be more than happy to help you. And as always, have an unfiltered day. See you next week.